0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you very much for your continuous care over your church. We know that your church is the apple of your eye, that you are watching over it, but we also know that we have uh, troublous times ahead. Oh, Father, we pray that anything said today will only glorify you. So we go through your word. Please guard my mouth. Guard my thoughts and may everything be very clear and we pray that you will truly be our best friend always as we lean on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have a lot of friends that are pro-ordination and I would feel very badly if in any way I hurt their feelings today. And so I just want to say that this is something that we have to be really, really sensitive to. There are many people who love the Lord with all their hearts and have differing opinions. And so one thing that I've really done sometimes is... When I am feeling a lot of turmoil inside, especially about issues and about situations, It really, really helps me if I spend time praying for each person individually. Uh, People that I disagree with, and maybe rightfully so, or for whatever reason, it doesn't mean that I need to personally feel upset towards them. And I encourage you to be the same. Always take the loving approach. Always be considerate of them. Uh, Jesus bled. At his enemy's hands. And you and I can bleed. It's okay to bleed. It's okay to cry. It's okay to feel really, really bad. But always, just like Jesus did, always pray. Always pray by name for different people that you disagree with. So for 2,000 years, men have been leaders and ministers and elders. Women have been earnest believers, followers, workers, not ordained, but just the same, working completely alongside husbands, pastors, and in situations. With the French Revolution, society pretty much took a total different turn. A lot of things were unleashed at the uh, French Revolution. That's why it has its own chapter in Revelation, chapter, chapter 11 in Revelation because of all the important things that actually changed. All of life changed after the French Revolution. French Revolution had a, an impact on feminism. At that time, atheism and agnosticism rose. Not that there wasn't any before that, but it rose. Humanism and a debunking of God's word happened. Higher critical methodologies started coming out but were later popularized by liberal Protestants. Spiritualism arose. We spent all morning on that. Equality for women had its beginnings. Not too many years later, 1844, the avenus came to... It rose amidst the fall of Babylon. When the churches changed, when they rejected truth, we are told that they became Babylon. One aspect of their change was the way they interpreted scripture. Because they had their hopes so set on the second coming, they earnestly longed for the second coming. They were so disillusioned when the second coming didn't happen. And when you have an extreme disillusion of that that sort, you have to realign how you interpret everything. Because if your sweetest spiritual experience has been tied up with the, the Advent movement, then how does how do you go back to the Bible again? And if Jesus didn't keep his word and come, how do you you figure that all out? And so early Adventists had a real struggle trying to come through with all that. And so historicism. Uh, The way you interpret prophecy with a historical methodology like Seventh-day Adventists do took a real hit. And that's why historical critical methodologies came in. Then you get your futuristic views where everything goes to the future. How do you picture all of that? And so uh, scripture took uh, a real hit in the way it was interpreted. So you get futurism and preterism and higher criticism coming in at that time. Shortly after that were the first ordinations of women outside the Seventh-day Adventist church. The spiritualists were among the first to enter women ministers, Pentecostals, were more free to ordain, mainline churches began, women's liberation takes on the cause later on, and Later on, still, the thrust was to get rid of male leadership, not so much get rid of, but at least put it on an equal 50-50% plane and encourage and, and promote lesbianism. In the SDA church, we began having a series of studies. Uh, The first study was in 1973 called Mohaven. This was a a camp similar to this, only in Ohio. Um, Before this, we had no women elders. And at this point our church came to start to study the whole picture of whether elders, ministers, were the same. And a whole group of scholars from Andrews University went there and other scholars from around um, went to, to there. And at that time, they had women elders I have a dear friend that went there, I have a personal letter from her which she explained some of the proceedings there and how she was very much against women's ordination of any type. But the chairman came to her personally and said, would you go along with trying, a trial basis of trying women's elders, would you be willing to try it and see how it works? noticed the idea of trial and she she said well she would go with the committee if that's the way that they they wanted her to and so she she went ahead and didn't it wasn't an official vote she gave she just assented and up to this time it has never been restudied okay it was a trial basis it was not never validated in general conference in session only at annual council okay and so this is a true fact and I can supply you with the the uh, facts there 1975 the general conference uh, had another commission to find out if ordination was biblical 1985 again at general conference another general conference uh uh, discussion in ni- 1989, Cahedda Springs. Uh, because of tax issues, it was decided that all elders may marry and baptism, baptize. Now you say, what does that have to do with the IRS? What you know, IRS shouldn't be getting involved in our theological questions. But this is how it worked, because Seventh Day Adventist ministers get a uh, benefit, parsonage allowance, if if you don't have, uh, if you are not uh, baptizing and doing. Marriages, then you can't get this benefit. And there were a lot of young uh, elders that uh, should be able to get this parsonage allowance and so because of the tax issue all elders at that time were allowed to marry and baptize which allowed women to marry and baptize. Okay? Cahutta Springs. Uh, I was actually there. They put forward a statement that, uh, and that which was actually voted in 1990 at the Indianapolis General Conference. And the statement there was that women could essentially do all the things that pastors do—marry, baptize, and all—but not be ordained. And I was. I mentioned to you earlier, I've been many times uh, disappointed with with the way things turned out. And that was one of the times when I was very disappointed because, number one, we go by the Bible. We don't go by, you know, what's politically expedient, number one. And number two, why are you going to let them marry and baptize and not let them be a full pastor. That's that is 100% discrimination in my my book. You know, you, if you're going to go that, then you, you 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 need to go the whole way. And it was a very. But their rationale was well. One step forward is better than no no step at all. So that's what happened. And uh, in 1990, that was allowed. No women's ordination, but allow for full ecclesiastical authority. Are
1: your elders there, are you talking about non-paid ordained elders? Are you talking about ministers on a
0: salary? Both. that's why elders from the church can also baptize.
1: I know, but I didn't know elders could marry.
0: They can. Okay. But most of them do not clean personally. Well, you have to go also to the state and all that yeah. kind of thing. It's not just the church itself, but uh, you have to that's, be... C- and like my father's an day elder; he's not clean personally. Yeah. Most, most of them are just bald. No, that's true. Most of these would be uh, applicable to, say, interns working in the church and women. All right? Those and, uh, would be the...
1: interns elders and
0: then actual ministers. Exactly. As opposed to the typical local bald. Correct. Okay. All right. But I just it also it also allows local elders, if they're allowed by the conference, to go ahead and marry and baptize. Then uh, there was a, it all came up again to uh, General Conference in Utrecht in 1995. And the proposal came from the North American Division that women be ordained to the gospel ministry But realizing that the rest of the world wasn't ready for ordination, they had the exception that only North of America or anybody that was ready for this be forced into this. Nobody else had to do this, but just just the countries that were ready. And... Like I mentioned just before we broke, before my husband had the opposing speech to this, which I will p- play at the end of this, this time together, so that you can actually hear the issue that was being put forth and how applicable it is today. You'll be very amazed. But in essence, the World Church in session voted that down, so women were not allowed to be ordained at that point. So NAD was not allowed, TED, any of the divisions were not allowed to ordain women. Well, what happened post-Utrecht? La Sierra and Sligo went right ahead with Planned or- Women Ordination. They, it didn't matter what the church voted, they just went ahead. There was no discipline offered for them. Uh, some of the conferences changed the terminology to commissioning rather than ordination to, to make it okay Um, and then of course you all know the recent North American division struggles where Columbia Union and Pacific Union went against the general conference's recommendations and began ordaining women with the idea that they're never going to come around so we might as well just go ahead and do it (laughs) then the southeastern California conference votes a woman president in and we're on territory here aren't we then <laughs> was uh, the theology of ordination study committee was established to once again study the theology of women's ordination what does the bible say So, what does the Bible say about women in leadership? And so I'm going to be taking you through a very brief, a very quick overview of some of the main issues of this. Uh, Those CDs that I keep talking about over there have a lot more detail. There's a whole book of Prove All Things on there with a lot of, lot of detail. At the end of my PowerPoint here, I will have a slide up there of the actual Theology of Ordination Study Committee URL. So you can go up and read for yourself everything that was said right there and presented right there at the committee. There were some excellent papers that were given and then there were some other papers. Mm -hmm. Um, So, first of all, we want to talk about the beginning of the Bible. And what difference does this have with women's ordination? Genesis is really the beginning of all things. And so you establish all your doctrine, really, in Genesis. And we'll get into why this is important in a minute. Genesis 1, 26 to 28 uh, is a very key statement about uh, women and men and their roles. Uh, it says in Genesis 1, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them... Okay, the first thing we want to note and underline and star and circle and make very clear is that man and women were created equal. And we have a very uh, strong word to use here. It's called ontological. That means the essence of being. Okay, this means that... The males and female, their worth is equal. Men's worth is not up here and women are way down here. No, God created us both in his image. This means that we are all equal as human beings together. And there is no difference in and and we all agree, both sides agree on this this point, that we are all equal and and cherished very much in God's God's sight. Amen. I want you also to notice that there is a clear differentiation and it's not androgyny, okay? What I mean by this is that there is male and there is female. He didn't make two males and he didn't make two females. He didn't make two beings that are like, um, Some animal that has bisexual things, you know, he made two separate uh, sexes, male and female. They were not blended, there was a clear differentiation. Their special design. God always does everything just right, and God created man. If, if you can just think for a minute, imagine God stooping down and creating man out of the out of clay. Um, Any of you done any sculpture? I mean, we are, are always just about the outside of how it looks. But how many of us go into all the bones and all the ligaments and everything inside? It's the most marvelous thing. Our body was wonderfully made. And Adam was the super beautiful human being that God created first later on from the rib of Adam we're going to get into that was also made specially both of them had special design different designs both complementary and both important now every word I'm saying here is is crucial uh, for this whole picture both are vital and both are important and verse 31 ends it all up by saying and God saw everything that he had made and behold it was was very good. He was satisfied. Okay, so uh, in Genesis two, we get more more specifics here. And in verse two, uh, chapter two, verse seven of Genesis, it says, "And God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul." So later on. Adam looks around and realizes that he is alone. Verse 8, the Lord God notices that and he says, you know, it's just not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helpmate for him. Okay, helpmate is an aid, a helper. Uh, If you look at Ebenezer, that's hitherto hath the Lord helped us, the same term. Helper is complement, you know, we, we work together. The helper is the other fitting part for part one, and they work together so beautifully. God created woman to work right alongside man. Notice that it denotes function and not being. Okay, Just because she is going to co-work with man does not mean that she is any less. Adam is the head of the race and becomes responsible for all living things. When after sin... Uh, the God comes to them in the cool of the day and did he say Eve, Eve, come here I need to talk to you about what happened today no, he was at calling Adam and so he was responsible so uh, of the race um, Romans 5.14 is very strong in saying nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses. Didn't say from Eve to Moses. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so we find Adam as head of the race, as the representative of all peoples as the actually the king of the universe as Ellen White says. In Great Controversy, page 647, this is one of the most beautiful sections. I love this section in Great Controversy where it starts talking about the glories of the new earth and what's happening. And it, it, she begins by saying, the two Adams are about to meet. The Son of God is standing with outstretched arms to receive the Father of our race, the being whom he created, who sinned against his maker, and for whose sin the marks of the crucifixion are born. And the, the whole reunion is depicted there so beautifully. But notice there, uh, the Father of our race, the head of our race, the representative of one of our race that is the key there now woman is created in Genesis 2 21 to 23 Verse 23 says that she was taken out of man and 1 Corinthians 11.8 says the same thing. Notice when we are talking about these things we don't just talk about one section. We like to include Old Testament and New Testament. Pull it all together to get a whole picture of what God is telling us in these things. Verse 22 says that... um, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made he a woman, and brought her to the man. And in Patriarchs and for uh, Patriarchs and Pro- Prophets, forty-six about how she was made perfect but different different roles determined by different equipment now that should be something obvious for us to understand but somehow this is not an obvious thing and so I want to make sure that we understand that there are roles and it's from right from the beginning Before sin, uh, everything I'm saying here is crucial to the discussion. So from before sin, there were already roles because we were created different. Okay, We have different roles and responsibility. Function was part of the creation and was not a result of the fall. So this is what Patriarchs and Prophets 46 says. Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam signifying she was not to control him as the head nor to be trampled under his feet as an inferior but to stand by his side as an equal to be loved and protected by him. We've already talked about the equality, the ontological equality. So not a head, not an inferior but by his side to be equal and to be loved. As part of man bone of bone flesh of his flesh she was his second self showing the close union and the affectionate attachment that should exist in this relationship God made it beautiful and he he himself called it very good she was his second self Oh, unfortunately, we don't always stay in paradise. We have the fall of woman depicted in Genesis chapter three, verses one to eight, where a woman chooses to leave the side of her husband. Uh, part of the responsibility he mentioned in patriarchs and prophets was that the husband was supposed to help protect her. They were told both to to stay away from that tree, and she left the side of her husband. And we already talked this morning about spiritualism type one. Ye shall not surely die. And ye shall be as gods knowing good and evil. Spiritualism type two. And the woman pooh, she sees that the tree is good. And she took the fruit and ate it. It was a conscious decision. She was deceived. Notice what Patriarchs and Prophets 53 says, the angels had cautioned Eve to beware of separating herself from her husband while occupied in their daily labor in the garden. With him, she would be in less danger from temptation than if she were alone absorbed in her pleasing task, she unconsciously wandered from his side. On perceiving that she was alone, she felt an apprehension of danger, but dismissed her fears, deciding she had sufficient wisdom and strength to discern evil and to withstand it. Page 55 of uh, Patriarchs and Prophets. Uh, goes along with the text 1 Timothy 2.14 Adam was not deceived but the woman being deceived was in the transgression and now having uh, patriarchs and prophets 55 says and now having herself transgressed she became the agent of Satan in working the ruin of her husband can you imagine the horror of Adam when his wife came to him with her hand full of fruit I mean, the the most awful nightmare you could ever imagine. Here she comes. Eve was his most precious love. She, he did everything with her. And now he knows the results of this. But yet she's standing there. She hasn't just died. God had said you would die, but she was standing there. She, he looks at the sin and the the fruit and decides to go ahead so that he can be in solidarity with his wife in transgression. Uh, It was a a terrible choice, but it was his choice. And then we find in chapter 3 of Genesis, the curses... The serpent of course was given the first curse in Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This was the first promise of hope that this whole nightmare that they had suddenly gotten into had would have some sort of a resolution and could come out okay. The ultimate victory would be of the seed of the woman. Then the curses for the woman are found in uh, chapter 3, verse 16. "Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. So pain and conception and childbirth, that the husband would rule over her. And I'd just like to point out one little thing here. I was just reading a scholar over in the last few days which talks about um, verse 16 there, thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. It's the desire there is um, the person was saying this could possibly mean that She wanted to be equal and would like to be in control and that there would be more struggles in the marriage because instead of working together now, they would now have more struggles and fights. Man was uh, cursed in Genesis 3, 17 to 19. He he was promised thorns and thistles. And the big question in these curses is when is the curse over? A lot of people say, well, uh, at the cross, don't you know, Jesus died on the cross, and the curse is over, and the victory is won, and therefore, the woman's curse is over. But I would like to ask you, are there still thorns and thistles? But the birth of the seed and the resulting salvation, are there still thorns? Is there still pain in childbirth? I don't think the curse is over yet. My uh, idea to submit to you is that the curse is finally over at glorification in heaven. When the great controversy has ended, great controversy 678, Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats through the vast creation. Then is when it's all over. Even though the cross was a tremendous, a tremendous promise, and it made the devil very angry, the curse was not over at the cross. Now I want to just take a picture of the leadership in the Old Testament. Um, was by precept and example the whole Bible is that way and in Exodus 28 41 it specifies that priests must be male and it gives examples of those rebelling and aspiring to be leaders when not chosen of God uh, we have the story, tragic story of Miriam in Numbers 21 with her leprosy, Coridathan and Abiram who were swallowed, and Athaliah took the whole nation down with her wicked rule. Patriarchs and Prophets 384 Hath the Lord indeed only spoken by Moses? Had Aaron stood up for the right, he might have checked the evil, but instead of showing Miriam the sinfulness of her conduct, he sympathized with her, listened to her words of complaint, thus came to share her jealousy. Aaron and Miriam, by their murmurings, were guilty of disloyalty not only to their appointed leader, but to God himself. Rebellion is a very serious None of us can experience or sense rebelliousness without uh, severe consequences. And for um, Miriam, it was being sent out of the camp. Now, to be sent out of the camp was a very fearful thing. There were wild animals. There were snakes. It was hot. It was all, all the horrible things you can imagine. And the whole nation of Israel was just terribly grieved. They were just... Terribly sorry, and uh, but she survived, and she came back in after her leprosy was um, acquitted, and uh, she was forgiven. And isn't it good that there's forgiveness in life? You know, we can yeah, make man. mistakes, you know, and Miriam made a mistake, but she was a very wonderful woman. I know she was. She had all the people singing at the the Red Sea there, so. You know, we have to forgive Miriam too. She she did something wrong, but uh, I think she learned her lesson. Some people think every believer a priest is only a New Testament idea, but indeed it was not. It was already in the Old Testament because in Exodus nineteen five and six, uh, Israel was called the Hebrews were called a kingdom of priests. But even though they were a kingdom of priests, there were Levites that served as priests. So it didn't mean that they were all officiating in the tabernacle. This is a very important distinguishing thing to understand. It means that all of them had could go to God himself and God cherished them. But th- there was still a hierarchy above them with their Levites serving as their priests. The New Testament had definite organization A difference between the gifts and the roles does not mean that every person is head of a church, just like uh, in the Old Testament they still had Levites and priests, but it means that all of us can serve the Lord as we talked about earlier. It means everyone is accountable to Jesus and there's no mediator. Let's skip on to leadership in the New Testament. Jesus called all male disciples. But he had many women followers uh, who helped. There was Mary, there were Martha, um, the, the women loved Jesus and were so happy to follow him Uh, Mary if you can just think of her she was one of the only people that told Jesus thank you the whole time he was here can you believe that nobody said thank you to Jesus except Mary and the leper that came back to thank him And, and she was the only one that came and she poured all her life savings out on his feet wiped it with her hair and was saying thank Thank you. What a beautiful gift. But then in 1 Timothy 3 2, Paul says that elders must be male. Uh, and we'll go into that a little more detail in a second here. There were many women believers, Lydia, Dorcas. Um, but let's take a good look at what the qualifications for elder actually are. So let's turn over to 1 Timothy 3 1 5. Is written from Paul to his his adopted, kind of adopted son Timothy, uh, sharing his last kind of will and testimony about what we should do in the house of the Lord. And in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, he specifies who should be leaders in the church. Verse 2 says, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Notice the husband of one wife. It's The term in Greek is aner, which is male. Uh, it is not anthropos, which is a generic term that could be anybody. Once in a while, aner is used generically but if you go specifically through the context of all the iner uh, derivatives in these chapters you'll it's overwhelmingly male you, you cannot do anything but that so notice they were to be vigilant, sober, good behavior, hospitality, apt to teach not drunken, ruleth well his house notice that last thing ruleth well his house um, I'll come back to it. Titus 1 verse 6 also has uh, a few, it's one of the parallel passages and it says, if any be blameless the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Again, husband of one wife. The Bible is specific, the elder must be male. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul addresses women. And he tells them in verse 9 that they should be modestly addressed. They should be adorned with modest apparel. They need to learn in silence, stillness, not contentiousness. And if you compare that with Acts 22, two, you understand what stillness actually means. With subjection or submission, suffer them not to teach... Uh, and then there's Titus 2, 3-5, 2 Timothy 3:15, Acts 18, 26, nor usurp authority over the man. And therein is the key to a lot of what we're talking about here. Um, when the early Avenists wrote about this topic, they didn't have trouble with the women speaking in church or sharing Ellen White spoke in church. But their bottom line was not to usurp authority, which is in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. Uh, That seems to be the, the main issue there. So, suffer not to teach. Can't be referred to regular teaching because Titus 2 3, we compare scripture and scripture. Remember this? Uh, Titus 2 3 says, women to be teachers of good things, teach other women how to be good wives and keepers at home. Acts 18 26, you have Aquila and Priscilla who took Apollos Apollos along and expanded the way of the Lord more perfectly. So these are examples of teaching. So Paul's qualification is that they are not to usurp or authority not to be in the headship position here so that not usurping authority means not being in charge of over men they're not to be asked to be elder not to be pastors in charge of churches it does not mean not giving messages to men Ellen white never an administrator or an elder but she gave messages from the Lord to men so let's talk a little bit more about this qualifications. 1 Timothy 3.2 Husband of one wife Notice the words here Is it one wife husband? In other words, bottom light not being polygamous? I don't believe so Is it really irrespective of gender like some would have us know? Notice husband of one wife Does it say wife of one husband? Could it be wife of one wife? Can it be husband of one husband? This is what it opens up to. As soon as you say this is gender, it's irrespective of gender. Okay, Because immediately, if you can change one of that formula, you can change any of the formula. And so this is really important to understand, that the qualifications for elder is a godly father man from, that does a good job with his family, and they all live in beautiful harmony together and he has a good home. The Bible is specific. The elder must be male. So the men are to be the head of the home and church. 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. One that ruleth well his own house, having his child children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Parallel passage is in Ephesians 5, 21-24, that where the wife is in submission to the husband as the church is submissive to Christ. Notice the love and the protection there in the submission. Timothy 3.15 talks and I want you to turn to this because a lot of people say oh but this is only a passage talking about home life that the he- the husband is the head of the home. Is it really look at 1 Timothy 3.15 because it says if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God which is in the church of the living God the pillar and ground of truth. This clearly means That this is passages about how we do church leadership. It's not how you set up your home government. That is another question. Although it's also the same at home because home is a small microcosm of what the church is. The Bible is specific. The elder must be male. Today... Society doesn't like the word submission. And the passage that is often quoted, I'd like you to turn there to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. This uh, Ephesians is a beautiful section here talking about women and men and submitting in the home. But in verse 21 it says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And so people say, oh see, home life, that's what it's supposed to be. Both sides are supposed to submit, it's not one to the other. Make sense to have that idea because the very next verse says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husband as unto the Lord. I mean, it's very specific, it doesn't say husbands ever, doesn't ever say husbands, submit yourself to your wives. And then the next section is about children submitting themselves to their parents, and the next section, servants to their employer, and so. What's it, what it's talking about here is not that parents submit to their kids and employers to their slaves or husbands to their wives, but this is a whole section talking about how we all work with submitting to each other and it goes on to define how, the, that, how that's supposed to work. And so it's kind of like a, a heading of the different kinds of submission that we'll be following um submit means to be subject subordinate or place under to come under to give in to not win in every argument that is hard stuff society doesn't like that all of us need to submit to Jesus in the fear of God loving husbands listen to their wives and adjust even when she doesn't agree she closes her mouth okay and then we got a string of texts there too bible is specific the elder must be male There is a qualification however that Paul gives and that is as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives submit yourselves unto your own husband as is fit in the Lord. Children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Submission does not mean to be trampled upon because there needs to be righteous authority here. The husbands are loved to love their wives and are not at liberty to mistreat them. Ephesians 5:25 to 33. They're, we're all clear on this. Parents are not to provoke their children to wrath by amusing parental authority. Ephesians 6:4. Masters are not to use authority to threaten servants because they too are servants. Ephesians 6:9. As unto the Lord, there is a righteous authority. I am going to skip this section uh, because of time constraints. Uh, I was going to talk about Deborah and if any of you have any questions about Deborah, Julia and some of these other people I am happy to talk to you later about them but uh, I'm going to rush on here because I do want to play that video for you. Theology of Ordination Study Committee, three positions were forwarded at, at their conclusion. The first position was that the Bible stands for male leadership, Against they were against women's ordination to the ministry and rescinding women elders since the headship role. Two, ordination without regard to gender as regions make their own choice, that was position t- two, that is pro-ordination, notice without regard to gender. Number three, even though the Bible says elders should be male, this is sometimes called the third option and you'll read uh, different things about it. Even though the Bible says elders should be male, the Bible accommodates that position goes. In other words, when the people of Israel requested a king, and God was not for that, but he accommodated it. And so we should allow for less than ideal situations and thus allow regional choice. So in practicality, position number two and position number three are the same, even though the way you get there is completely different. So of all those three, the only one that's really against women's ordination in practicality is position number one. Now, my question for you is, by every word, do we use culture to change meanings of literal words in Scripture? culture today inspires harmonics. We talked about that on Sabbath. The whole Bible interpretation method is at risk. A determined group will not take no for an answer. This question keeps coming up, but let it not color our whole views of the church and of our work. All of us, like we talked about this morning, are to be working for the Lord and not get so hung up over the ordination question that we get discouraged in life. And let's not let the devil tempt us to be um, discouraged or angry or disappointed, but we look up because we know our redemption is sooner than ever before because it's all going to come to a close soon. All of us can work together, both men and women, and women without ordination, nobody says that they have to be ordained. I'm putting up a couple of links. Take them down quickly. I can put this back up to you for you in a couple minutes here. Uh, I highly recommend ordinationtruth.com. It might be .org. I'd have to check that out. I'm thinking it might be a .org. But uh, there are different clips up there on all kinds of different subjects. Um, There are many, many papers up there. It's a really good place to get important information. Tosk papers uh, can be found in the avenusarchives.org and if you don't have all of those strange characters don't worry because if you go up there you can look kind of hunt hunt and peck around and eventually find where those uh, papers are. The consensus statements are all there. There's January 2013, July 2013, January 2014, and June 2014. There were four TOSC papers. So those are some of the links that you can be looking for. I promised you that I would... uh, Whoa! Just a minute. We'll try that again. Uh, That we would. I would show you my husband. And I tried very hard to keep to time here and kind of race through things. But uh, this is my husband giving his response to the request from North American Division to allow each division to ordain women as they desire. Utrecht, 1995.
1: It is a privilege for me, brethren and sisters, to address you at this awesome occasion. Let us pray. Lord, send your spirit. Touch our hearts. And whatever we do, may it be to your glory. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord and Savior and Redeemer, Amen. Let me first of all state that I strongly support the involvement of women in God's work. Women have unique gifts needed to finish the work. They can reach people men can never reach. Even though I cannot agree with the NAD request, I truly and deeply sympathize with the NAD. What is a dilemma the Church is facing? Some years ago, the annual council voted that women ordained as elders can perform all the duties of ordained ministers. Yet cannot be ordained as ministers. And of course the result is very unhappy. No one really likes it. And some accuse the church of uh, unfairness, discrimination and injustice. How can we now together solve this dilemma and yet preserve the unity of the church? Two options were cited by the NAD president. First of all, to reverse the decision and to begin ordaining beginning ordaining women as elders. Second option was to request that each division have the freedom to ordain women as ministers. The NAD leadership has chosen the second option. They sincerely believe that this is the way to preserve unity. Why cannot can I not support this request? Simply because the request conflicts with three of our biblical doctrines. First of all, the doctrine of the Church, the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures, and the doctrine of the unity in the body of Christ. In order to understand this fully, we have to see the full implications of this request. It's not simply a matter of laying up of hands. Actually, we have good counsel in the spirit of prophecy that women for special work can be laid up the hands, laying up of hands, and they can do a tremendous work. No, this issue is the ordination to what? That's the issue. And so the present request presents a major change, if approved, in the structure of church leadership. It rejects the generally held Seventh-day Adventist view that the Bible teaches clear differences in function between men and women within the church. It assumes that the Bible allows women to occupy positions of spiritual headship in the church such as head of the local church, conference president, union president, and general conference president. Now, how are we going to evaluate this request, the validity? The question is, is this, friends, good news from Jesus? What is now the test of our doctrine and practice? The Bible clearly reveals, in Isaiah 8, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. Now, we as Adventists are very fortunate, because about 100 years ago, in 1888, we had a conference with lots of tensions, and there the Lord revealed... The Bible must be our standard for every doctrine and practice. You notice that? And practice. It is the word of the living God that is to decide all controversies, including the one this afternoon. And so we are dealing with a significant practice, the practice of appointing ministerial leadership in Christ's church. So therefore, friends, we are on good terms. God's Word must be our focus. We are a Bible church. Now the question frequently is, yeah, the Bible doesn't say anything about it, and we can just go ahead. What we have to face now, in the next few minutes, is to ask the question, does the Bible speak to the question of right of women to occupy positions of leadership with full ecclesiastical authority? And that is a phrase that the spirit of prophecy associates with ordination. Let me go back as a teacher in the history of our church, The Edmund pioneers, they were strongly reform-minded and they supported reform movements such as the abolition of slavery, women's rights, and the uh, temperance. But there is one reform movement that he opposed. Ellen Light rejected the women's right movement. Why? The prophet warned that those who feel called out to join the movement in favor of women's rights might as well sever all connection with the third angel's message. Why? The spirit which attends the one cannot be in harmony with the other. Why? The spirit the scriptures are playing upon the relations and rights of men and women. So does the Bible address this issue? What are the scriptures? Plain on this issue. And so let us now look at our three major doctrines. First of all, they request conflict with the doctrine of the church. Let us look now on the dynamics. What does the Bible teach on the relationship between men and women? It teaches, first of all, true equality of nature and worth before God. Genesis clearly reveals that in nature men and women are created in the image of God. Secondly, in worth, Jesus reveals that before God we're all exceedingly precious. God shows no partiality because we're all one in Christ Jesus. Therefore, friends, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. On this we all agree. However, are men and women the same in every sense? What does the Bible teach? And it is clear from the study of the Bible that the Bible teaches that they have the same value and standing before God, but that they are different in their functional roles. And the North American division request overlooks this fundamental Bible teaching. First Timothy and Titus clearly presents this teaching with directly pre addresses our situation. And let us look to the message of uh, Timothy in the first book of Timothy, chapter 1, because it is a timeless message for the church. Listen here what inspiration does in the first chapter. Timothy was instructed to teach no other doctrine or give heed to fables which cause disputes rather than godly edification. And so the Lord provided counsel how to rescue churches from division and heresy. Inspiration gave Timothy a plan, not only for the first century, but during the Christian era for the church until the Lord returns. Inspiration says again, I'm writing these instructions to you so that you may know how you ought to behave in the Church of the Living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. Let us now analyze in this book the principles of authority in the Church. You know, early Christians had something similar as we are facing today. In certain places, women interpreted the freedom of the Gospel as a freedom to exercise the spiritual headship role in the Church response was swift, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. What does the Bible teach in specifically those chapters about God's great plan for spiritual headship? There are three major biblical arguments. First of all, we look at Christ's creation order before the fall. Paul bases his first theological reason on Christ's creation order. What is he saying in second is it Timothy? It says here, Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's interesting that Jesus' actions here had nothing to do with culture specifically. Secondly, Christ's order after the fall. His second theological reason is based on the order of sin. Adam was not deceived, but the women was deceived and became a transgressor. Again, brethren and sisters, it has nothing to do with a specific culture. Finally, Christ's order after the cross. These role distinctions in the Old Testament that Jesus instituted are not cancelled by his redemptive work. God's word proclaims clearly in Corinthians the head of every man is Christ, the head of a woman is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Thus, priestly headship of the man in the home and in the church is still in effect during the Christian era. Now, let us look at the qualifications for an elder overseer. What are the requirements for spiritual headship? Now, the dynamics of this chapter is magnificent. Listen how inspiration does it. Immediately after the admonition that women do not have the spiritual authority in the church, Paul immediately points out who has the authority namely the elder of the church what are the characteristics an elder must be blameless secondly he must be husband of one wife it doesn't say spouse of a husband he is to be of the male gender You know, here the Greek word for husband is an heir, which is always a man, never a woman. So to appoint a woman as an elder based on the Bible is unbiblical. Thirdly, and this supports the whole argument, an elder must be one who rules his house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Why? Why? For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? You see, the principle now, brethren and sisters, successful home leadership qualifies for spiritual headship in the church. This is not a cultural custom, but a divinely ordained principle as unto the Lord. And so what is now the line of authority in the doctrine of the church? Remember what we have voted as the fundamental beliefs, 11, that the church derives its authority from Christ, who is the incarnate word, and from the scriptures, which are the written word. So the authority structure is based on the Bible. How does it work? Very simple. Christ, as the head of the church, delegates his authority to the leaders of the church in harmony with the Bible. That in harmony with his order of creation, Jesus assigns the position of an elder or overseer to man, not to a woman. Any change in this divine plan for his church will result in the derailment of a mission-driven church. My second reservation is that the request violates the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. Remember, in this doctrine, it says the Holy Scriptures are the infallible revelation of His will and the test of His experience. Frequently, people tell me, oh, yeah, Paul was biased, uh, influenced by His culture. The real question is, friends, can we trust the Bible writers? Yes. Because God is the author of the Bible, and therefore the Bible is the infallible authority as a rule of faith and practice, it is not affected by human prejudice or human pride. The Bible therefore is trustworthy and unbiased. Now the question is, how do we interpret the Bible? Simply. The word of God is infallible. Accept it as it reads. We have it... We have had plenty of counsel about the danger of modifying God's instructions. The the very beginning of the great apostasy was in seeking to supplement the authority of God by that of the church. Rome began by enjoining what God had not forbidden, and she ended by forbidding what he had explicitly enjoined. True faith consist in doing just what God has enjoined, not in manufacturing things He has not enjoined. What we need as Seventh-day Adventists, friends, is submission to the Word of God, not reinterpretation. You know, the remnant We are a part of the Remnant Church, and the Remnant Church is a movement at the end of time that is still to reveal the characteristics of the New Testament Church, even in the authority structure of church leadership. My third reservation is that the request destroys the doctrine, the unity of the body of Christ. Our doctrine says simply, through the revelation of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, we share the same faith and hope and reach out in one witness to all. Did you see the connection between the revelation of Jesus in the Scriptures? Five minutes, please. And the result of approving the request... What is it? It allows the use of two conflicting methods of biblical interpretation for Seventh-day Adventists. One method follows the New Testament, the Protestant Reformers, the Advent pioneers, including Ellen White. This approach favors a plain meaning of the Bible in its regulations for church leadership. The other method, sad to say, follows the approach adopted by the fallen churches of Babylon since 1844. This new approach to the Bible is strongly influenced by the trends of today's culture. Male spiritual headship is not political correct. What are the effects of those two conflicting methods of biblical interpretation? It establishes two conflicting theologies of church leadership. One, ordination will not have worldwide validity any longer, and some fields will not recognize the leadership from other fields. Approving leads towards division, not unity, towards national churches, not the world church, and ultimately to congregationalism. For unity, my friends, for unity, my friends, 7th the Adventists must follow the word of God. What will I do if this assembly approves the proposal? Remember, God calls to unity in Christ. I will stay with the church. Where else shall I go? The messenger of the Lord states, stay with the ship. It will go through. It may be damaged, but I will stay with the ship. There's no better place without it. And, you know, the future for Bible-believing Seventh-day Adventists is great. Let me share you a promise in great controversy. Word says, the Lord will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible and the Bible only as a standard of all doctrine and the basis of all reform. The opinions of learned men, the deductions of science, the creed of decisions of ecclesiastical councils, the voice of the majority, not one or all these things should be regarded as evidence for or against points of religious faith. Before accepting any doctrine or precept, we should demand a plain, thus says the Lord in its support. What about some of the arguments that you constantly hear? Yes, it is good for the unity, so therefore approve it. Friends, unity cannot be kept by a policy contrary to scripture. It brings confusion and drives people to independent ministries. Secondly... Some women, technically, I have a call from the Lord. The Lord told me to lead out in the church and take charge of the whole church. Remember, not every call or gift comes from God. Test the spirits to see whether they are of God. What about the argument of fairness and justice? Remember, the Bible is our standard to judge what is fair and just. We must follow the Bible, not the standards of society. And so why, in summary now, why can I not support this request? Because it's out of harmony with three Seventh-day Adventist doctrines. First of all, it conflicts with the doctrine of the Church by instituting an unscriptural structure. Secondly, it violates the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures by not accepting Scripture as it plainly reads. And thirdly, it destroys the doctrine of unity in the body of Christ by introducing an unbiblical practice that nullifies the worldwide validity of ordination. Remember, friends, in conclusion, that we have always considered ourselves the continuity of the Protestant Reformation. Is that still so today? When Luther, the great reformer, was confronted with a choice between human opinions and the Bible, he said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture, I cannot and will not change my views. Friends, from a humble beginning, 7 day Adventists have had the same conviction. Will they still continue as successors of the Protestant Reformation and bring it to a glorious climax? The actions of this afternoon will certainly reveal the true spirit of this teaching in our church. May God help us. Is my prayer.